Hi, I'm Curious City's Jason Mark, and as we were getting ready for the holidays and looking through the archives, I found a story I wanted to share. The building at 680 North Lakeshore Drive in Chicago's Streeterville neighborhood is famous for a lot of reasons. When it was completed in 1926, it was among the biggest single-use buildings in the world. At one time, it was the home of Playboy Enterprises, and for a short stretch beginning in the 1980s, it was home to a tiny but legendary club called the Gold Star Sardine Bar. That's Curious City listener Dion McGill, and when he started a new job in the 680 building several years ago, he noticed that on the ground floor there were these locked doors, and painted on those doors in gold letters were the words Gold Star Sardine Bar and the names of entertainment greats and jazz legends like Tony Bennett, that comes in the night and repeats and repeats. Liza Minnelli, and Lionel Hampton, just to name a few. I'm a jazz fan, so I was really interested in it. But, you know, Lionel Hampton and all of that. So Dion reached out and asked if we could tell the story behind this short-lived but legendary music spot. Reporter Monica Eng will do just that. We'll also pump up your holiday cheer by meeting a couple of the folks who sell Christmas trees in Chicago parking lots. It's all coming up after the break. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I discovered authors I had never heard of and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. The answer to Dion's question digs up a shiny little treasure of Chicago history. It tells the story of music, movie stars, and one man's dream for bygone glamour, and how that dream was ultimately funded by gourmet groceries. Monica Ang takes it from here. To tell the story, I've tracked down court records and a bunch of folks who worked and frequented the bar during its 14-year run, beginning in 1983. They include Tribune senior writer Rick Kogan. It was in the uh, early 80s when I first walked into this place and made an assessment right away that, wow, this place can only seat 30 people, maybe 60. And some say that's where that name, the Sardine Bar, came from. Folks were packed in like sardines. It was the tiniest place I'd ever been in my life, but there was something undeniably magical about it. Tribune arts critic Howard Reich agrees. I think in over 40 years of listening to music in Chicago, I've never encountered a club remotely like it. And it didn't matter how crowded or packed in you felt, you knew you were there in this little cocoon of elegance that had no peer anywhere in Chicago or anywhere in the country for sure. This cocoon of elegance featured a brass-trimmed bar in one corner and a Maryland stage in the other. Huge, iconic prints filled the walls, and a neon sign above the stage read, 
love always, in French. And then there were the cigarettes. To my very much liking at the time, free cigarettes and jars on all of the tables. That's one of the things that the cult star became so famous for, was free cigarettes. Also, never a cover charge. The club was the brainchild of Bill Allen, a co-founder of Chicago's Treasure Island grocery store chain. These were the first big stores to import fancy European groceries here. And one was in the 680 Lakeshore Drive building. Longtime Gold Star performer Patricia Barber remembers the club as a marriage between Allen's gift for marketing and devotion to a bygone era of music. He was a Frank Sinatra fan in a big way, Peggy Lee fan in a big way. He was a big American classic song book fan. That's what he was. And by the American classic songbook, Barber meant songs by composers like Cole Porter and George Gershwin, whose tunes were popular in the New York cabarets of the 1950s. spent some time in New York after the Navy, and for years he dreamed of recreating that scene in Chicago. He had these wonderful memories of the New York club scene in the 40s, 50s. This is not something that would uh, warm my heart. He said, it's like New York in Chicago. But if he was going to recreate the experience of that bygone era, he'd have to actually book some of the top people who performed back then in this tiny club, and pay them handsomely. So he called up Debbie Silverman Krolik. She's the Chicago publicist for the great Tony Bennett. She recalls picking up the phone and hearing an unfamiliar voice. My name is Bill Allen, and I gotta get Tony Bennett into the Gold Star Sardine Bar. Our love is here to stay. To I said, the what? She'd hardly heard of the place, but said she'd make the request. And miraculously, Tony Bennett said yes. Now, how Ellen could afford to pay Tony Bennett, I'll get to that later. But that amazing show put the gold star on the map. And after it was over, Bill calls me up, and he says, Well, sugar, it's you and me now. Alan asked her to be his publicist, and she says she agreed in part because he wanted to make the bar world famous. And he had a master plan. He used a philosophy that's used in grocery stores. It's called the lost leader, where you put something up on sale, draw people in. And that big shiny sale item would be big names in jazz cabaret. People who could have played places like the auditorium, for God's sake, Julie Wilson, Tony Bennett, Lionel Hampton, Liza Minnelli. So every six weeks or so, he'd have a surprise guest. Former Chicago Sun-Times jazz critic Lloyd Sachs reviewed a lot of those shows. I remember one gig, the great Stan Getz had his quartet there. And uh, just the opportunity to see Stan Getz from, you know, 12 feet away with one of his greatest bands ever was like... You know, how did they do that? Coming up, all good things must come to an end, including the Gold Star Sardine Bar. Find out what happens after this. (laughs) 
Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. Curious City is supported by BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime at no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Curious City today to get 10% off your first month. The Gold Star reached its apex in the summer of 88. That's when Allen announced a series of shows by the cabaret great Bobby Short. Thousands of people wanted to be there. The act drew something in the neighborhood of 7,000 people, which is more than 100 times what that place could hold. The reason is cause something's happened to me. Who acted as MC but the sitting governor of the state of Illinois, Jim Thompson? But Chicago's power brokers didn't just show up for the big shows. Barbara remembers a revolving cast of them all week long. Well, you had everybody who was anybody in Chicago uh, at the Gold Star. So you had socialites, politicians, all the mayoral troops, the general counsel, lots of movie stars. I met Kurt Russell. I met Gene Hackman. And all of them got surprisingly quiet for the performance. Alan wouldn't even allow drinks to be served when someone was playing. We would give them a nice break so they could drink and chat, and do their mergers and acquisitions, and make their deals. Remember, it was the 80s, so people were making deals. On top of the big stars and powerful clientele, the Gold Star was known for some quirky foods, like White Castle hamburgers they'd buy daily and reheat in the microwave. Also, a weirdly famous chicken salad sandwich and ice cubes made from Perrier water. But beyond all that, the Gold Star served up a strong lineup of local talent. These included singers like Spider Saloff, socialite Shelley MacArthur Farley, and, of course, Patricia Barber. She remembers the Gold Star is a great place to hone her craft. It was an interesting way to to grow up and to see how a big city works. But Barbara says her relationship with Alan was contentious from the beginning. When she first tried out for the job, she didn't even tell him she could sing. Because I have stage fright, and it's just always been easier for me to play the piano. Anyway, so he said, show me what you got. So I went up to the piano and played, and he hired me right away. And then again, about six months into tenure, I started singing. And he was like, oh my god, I taught her how to sing. I taught Patricia Barber how to sing. So from that point on, he told everybody that he taught me how to sing. Barbara says Alan could be brilliant and charming, but he could also try to humiliate her in front of the audience. Bill was uh, volatile, to say the least. He would shout across the room, Gershwin can't write! Gershwin doesn't know how to write a song! Don't ever do any George Gershwin in this place again! Okay, so everybody in the club hears it. I hear it. I laugh. Okay, so we take a break. Then I come back up and I do an entire set of George Gershwin. Summertime. I wasn't sure if he was going to turn off the electricity, if he was going to throw tomatoes at me. I didn't know exactly what he was going to do. 
Despite these sometimes tense moments, Barbara says she stayed there for almost a decade because most of the time it was still a great place to make and hear music. I mean, you can talk about the Gold Star in all its glory, and it, and it did have that. And then, of course, there was a darker side to it. There were hints of that darker side when people tried to figure out how Alan could afford such big acts in such a tiny club. A club that didn't charge people to get inside or require them to buy drinks. And keep in mind, these were acts who could fill auditoriums and command a lot of money. Again, here are Lloyd Sachs, Rick Kogan, and Debbie Silverman Krolik. There was always the feeling of a, a kind of a vanity project with the Gold Star. I mean, unless people were buying a lot more drinks than I thought they were. I mean, lost money. There's no question about it. Sort of said, okay, it's like a hobby. Some people play golf. Some people have affairs. This was Bill's golf and this was Bill's affair. I honestly don't know how he scraped up the money to do this. The Gold Star dream ended abruptly in the fall of 97 when the club suddenly shut down. The building owner said Allen owed $20,000 in back rent, but Allen claimed he was being overcharged. His nephew and lawyer at the time, John Malavides, says the club was also losing money and his uncle was tired and in poor health. In a separate case the next year, Allen pleaded guilty to conspiring to defraud the IRS. Reports say he had admitted siphoning off more than a million dollars from Treasure Island by submitting fake invoices to the store's bookkeeper. He said he used some of it to support the Gold Star. In the end, Allen lost his stake in Treasure Island and was sentenced to probation. He died in 2001. This complicated ending doesn't tarnish the Gold Star for people like Kogan and Reich. It was, in a sense, I think, the last gasp of big-time, intimate entertainment. Tony Bennett at Ravinia is not Tony Bennett at the Gold Star Sardine Bar. It was like Brigadoon. It appeared and then it was gone. And you wondered, how did that even happen? How did that even come true? But for a while, it did. I met up with question asker Dion to tell him what I'd learned, and it left him feeling, well, like Bill Allen, wishing for a bygone era. I wish it were still there. How great would it be where I could sit 20 feet from Michael Buble or sit from Harry Connick Jr. and you hear this amazing music, that concept in and of itself, like, oh, amazes me. Um, and I'm so glad that I now know this. Oh, and by the way, the Gold Star space was recently leased to Northwestern University. They're keeping the signs outside the door, but remodeling the inside as a student workspace. And they're calling it the Sardine Bar. On kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens. Ah, Tony Bennett. I've seen him at Orchestra Hall. I've seen him at the Hollywood Bowl. I've seen him at Ravinia. But in a place that holds 70 people, that would have been amazing. Well, Tony and his Christmas music have put us in a real giving mood, so we've got a little bonus for you. Every year in Chicago around the holiday season, you're going to see normally vacant lots and corners of big box parking lots go green. Green with Christmas trees. These pop-up businesses are usually run by two types of people those who own the lots and import trees, often from faraway places, 
and tree farmers who grow them year-round, cut the ones that are ready, and drive them to Chicago, usually from nearby states like Wisconsin or Michigan. So with Christmas just around the corner, we thought you might want a little peek into a person from each of these camps. Again, reporter Monica Eng was on the case, and she met up with these folks along with listener Jessica Tancy, who was eager to learn more about the tree selling business. My name is Ivy Speck, and we use this lot for the cub season as well. And then every year for the last 28 years, we turn it into a tree lot. Her place is Ivy's Christmas Trees at Roscoe and Sheffield, and she sells almost exclusively the king of trees, Fraser Furs from North Carolina. She used to get a variety of trees from all over the Midwest. Little by little, we start bringing these in, and nobody was buying our other trees. But Jessica's got even more questions. What are your hours during the week, and how many trees do you sell, and how many deliveries do you get? Like, what are kind of those nitty-gritty logistics? We can sell up to 100 during the week, maybe 200 on a weekend day. Yeah. Yeah. Deliveries, yeah, lots. Then they're the money questions. I know the city makes all lot owners get an itinerant merchant's license. That's $50 a month. But what about profits? One tree industry website says vendors can buy trees for 15 to 25 bucks and sell them for more than three times that. Ivy pays more, like double that, because they're all primo trees, no pines or cheaper varieties. So how much does she make a season? I tell her that one site estimates profits of fifteen to 20000 a month. Okay. <laughs> sure. I wouldn't work here if I only made that, though. Those are my secrets. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I'm, I You're will tell you, though, guys, a lot goes into it. You know, I have freight from North Carolina. Yeah. My wreaths, my garland, my tree stands. I mean, we bale the trees. Mm-hmm. The netting costs money. Mm-hmm. So there's some overhead. And, yeah, we... We work hard out here. He's, he's hard work, social media, and perks like free delivery and recycling pickup have earned it. Ivy a loyal following. Folks who come back every year, even after leaving the neighborhood. But her model still surprises some customers. People want me to be a farmer, so they go, well, are you from Wisconsin? Or do you, do you live around here? And I'm like, yeah, I do. I, I, I don't know if I make people feel bad, like I should be a farmer. No way. It's a local business. Yes. Woman-owned and run business. Yes, yes, yes. There are Chicago Christmas tree operators who do happen to be tree farmers. Greg Arneson is one of those. His grandpa started bringing Christmas trees from Wisconsin by schooner nearly 100 years ago. And he carries on the tradition of renting corner lots to sell those northern trees. During most of the year, Arneson lives and works construction in Wisconsin. But for almost a half a century, he spent November and December in Chicago. Every year, for as long as I can remember, I've been, I'm here. Thanksgiving, Christmas, I'm here. So <laughs> it's like my home, you know, I, I, I grew up here as a kid. But Arneson says this business model of growing and selling the trees it's starting to fade. Now the box stores, you know, are carrying trees. You go to the grocery store, you're seeing trees. Um, that never used to be like that. Arneson says he still manages six to ten Chicago lots a year, and they cater to clients who want something more than the big box experience. My customers tend to be more picky. Um, you know, they'll come in and they'll spend an hour, sometimes two hours, walking around looking for the perfect tree. You know, that's kind of the difference, basically. This time of year, he spends long days driving between lots, schlepping trees, and doing night deliveries. 
Each lot is managed by seasonal workers who stay on the property. This year, he's got some Jamaican fireman buddies working, but mostly, he says, they're construction workers like him from Wisconsin. Guys like Chris Peterson, who's keeping warm inside a trailer on one of the lots. I ask him if it's tough work. Like, we got our cold days, but we got heat in there, fridge in there, stove, microwave, two bunks. Yeah, we stay right in the, right in the shack. We got a full-size stove in there. What do you like cooking? I don't know. Eat a lot of cereal and stuff. <laughs> Pizza, cook burgers, all kinds of stuff, eggs, wow. bacon. He says they can make a little scratch for the holidays. Yeah, helps out quite a bit at the end of the year. When we're done, it helps out with presents and the family. So there you have it, a behind the scenes, or should I say behind the tree look at one of the most visible signs of Christmas in Chicago. Thanks to Monica Eng for reporting on this week's episode. Curious City is put together by Joe Dassault, Maggie Sivet, Sophia Lowe, and me, Jason Mark. Our editor is Alexandra Solomon. Special shout out to Paloma Moreno Jimenez for production help on this episode. And one quick update. Earlier, we heard from Howard Reich. After decades as a Chicago Tribune arts critic, he's left the Trib, but he continues to write books on the Chicago art scene and its history. Curious City is supported by the Conan Family Foundation. Thanks for listening. Keep those questions coming, and we'll see you back here next week. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org slash curious. Thank you.